government wants to achieve 24 gigawatts of nuclear power by 2050, and Hinkley and size altogether are about 6 gigawatts. The first round of questions that came through from the examining authority numbered 2,229 questions. And that was, that was a record at the time for any DCO. There were 1,282 affected parties that had submitted relevant representations through the process as well. If you look today, there's, four, there's nearly 4,400 documents on the Planning Inspector website that relate to the application. And many of these, of course, are enormous documents in themselves. The Secretary of State's decision letter that um, was issued on the 20th of July with the decision was 194 pages itself uh, that sat alongside 1,500 pages from the Planning Inspectorate's inspector's report. When I started on it, it frightened me to death, frankly. The, the scale of it is unbelievable. A normal project would be doing the sizeable link road, but we're doing the sizeable link road, the green rail route, the two village bypass, two park and rides, a freight management facility, etc, 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 all at the same time. This dominated my life for, for 10 years, really, and um, you, 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 yeah, you live and breathe it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Johnny Dowling. In this episode, we've partnered with WSP to learn how the complex transport requirements of projects, like a nuclear power station, can be planned and modelled. And it's a new process used in the UK that allows for comprehensive stakeholder engagement with a tight schedule for examining plans. The UK is caught on the horns of the energy trilemma. That is, the challenge of balancing energy cost, security and sustainability. Disease and war have rocked global energy markets, causing prices to skyrocket. Countries around the world face difficult choices between buying fossil fuels from rivals or uneasy allies, or enduring blackouts. And this continued reliance on fossil fuels threatens net zero goals. Nuclear power looks likely to be a key element in resolving these challenges. It will allow power to be reliably produced without requiring fossil fuel imports. It will provide baseline power, supporting national demands that cannot be met at all times by renewables like wind and solar. In conjunction with renewable energy, it promises a reliable and affordable source of power produced locally. As this episode was being written, the UK government confirmed its support for the construction of a new nuclear power station being developed by EDF on the UK's east coast, Sizewell Sea. As well as helping meet the UK's energy needs, it will employ thousands of people in its construction. Across the country as a whole, it will support the creation of around 70,000 jobs. Any project of this scale will have complex transport requirements. Millions of tonnes of construction materials must be brought to the site. Hundreds of very large or heavy loads must be transported and thousands of people will have to get to site each day. Sizewell A was one of the first nuclear power plants built in the UK in 1966. A second plant, Sizewell B, was added to the complex in the 1990s. And a third, Sizewell C, 
has now been given the go-ahead to begin construction with power generation expected to start in the mid-2030s. Like all nuclear power plants, Sizewell is in a rural location close to the sea. This has some advantages. For example, many loads can be transported by sea, but it means too that the engineers working on the project must find ways to accommodate vastly increased road and rail use in an area with limited existing infrastructure. Many local people welcome the jobs the project will bring, but there are also reasons for them to be concerned about the transport impacts. Traditionally, projects like this have had to go through a years-long planning inquiry process. The process used to plan Sizewell C, called a Development Consent Order, or DCO, was relatively new when planning started. This sets clear timetables for the examination of a project, allowing project owners to engage with stakeholders and answer all of their questions. At the end of the process, the government gives a clear decision on all aspects of the plan. We'll look in more detail at the advantages of the DCO process later in this episode. While the example we're looking at today is in a rural location, other projects in cities and other densely populated areas also stand to benefit from this streamlined process. John Hicks of WSP has worked on the project for more than a decade and has a comprehensive understanding of the landscape and communities around Sizewell Sea. Suffolk, which is actually where I live, is a very rural and largely agricultural environment. Predominantly small towns and villages with relatively poor transport infrastructure, particularly on the east side of the county where Sizewell is. The site itself is within an area of outstanding natural beauty. Uh, and the site itself is adjacent to a SSSI, a site of special scientific interest. This is gentry rolling countryside, very picturesque, strong tourism uh, industry, quite remote uh, and therefore, in a sense, an ideal location for a nuclear power station. You don't build them in the middle of Birmingham. You build them in remote locations next to the sea. This might be a rural area, but Sizewell has many neighbours with diverse interests, and it was important that their voices are heard in the planning and approval process. So the two, the two largest towns in Suffolk are, are Ipswich to the south, about 45 kilometres away, which is a population of 140,000, and Lowestoft to the north, about 40 kilometres away, with 75,000 people living there. But the nearest small town to the Sizewell site is Leyston, which has about a population of about 6,000, and that's three kilometres to the west. So it's a predominantly rural environment, but one that's familiar with nuclear because Sizewell A started generating power in 1966 and size will be, which is still operational in 1995. When you talk to people about the job opportunities, young people are really excited. I've done a fair bit of engagement with schools in the area uh, and you know the opportunity that this presents is, is tremendous for young people because lots of young people like growing up in Suffolk and want to stay there, but they can't stay there unless there's good job opportunities. Yoxford is a community that has a lot of retired artists, writers, that sort of thing, and probably not as supportive in principle of the idea of nuclear energy, but still wanted to make sure that they could minimise the impact through mitigation measures where appropriate. 
Planning the project and the transport infrastructure that would enable its construction required engaging with multiple local stakeholders. Many local people would welcome the careers the site would bring. Some would have concerns about the impact of traffic and construction on the local tourism sector. And others did not want to see their peaceful retirement disrupted. To address all of these stakeholders' concerns, EDF needed a clear picture of transport requirements. They asked John and the consultant team to help them understand and model this. There's two key requirements. We think about the workforce and what the requirements are for moving thousands of people to work each day. And what are the requirements for materials, freight that we have to move? And there's millions of tonnes of materials to import to the site to construct a nuclear power station. The peak workforce uh, is about 7,900 workers, and we're expecting that to happen in about 2028. So one of the things we've always wanted to do, and even in the start of the transport strategy, was to reduce the travel demand for them by building some accommodation next to the site. So we've got an accommodation campus of about 2,400 spaces adjacent to the site, which means those 2,400 people effectively get out of bed, have their breakfast and walk to work and don't impose any travel demand on the local network. Sizewell C is the second of two plants being built in the UK by EDF. The first project, Hinkley Point, provided a model for how this site would be built and the materials that would be needed in its construction. So, so we know about well, just over 12 million tonnes of materials will be to be imported to build the, the project. Uh, and that's made up of about 40% of that is, is material that we use for building, making reinforced concrete, effectively. So cement and aggregates, which are coming from various sources, um, from South Wales uh, and the South West in particular. And that might seem a bit counterintuitive, but the reason for that is that we want to replicate what we're doing at Hinkley Point. So at Hinkley Point, they went through a very long process of getting the right concrete mix with the right characteristics and behaviours to work in a nuclear power station. And that process took them two to three years before they satisfied themselves they had the right mix. What we don't want to do is replicate that two to three years at Sizewell. Instead, what we want to do is replicate the same mix that we use at Hinkley at Sizewell, and that means importing materials from South Wales, Somerset, Dorset, and the South West generally. As well as the bulk materials that will be used to build the plant, it also requires a firm and well-engineered foundation to stand on. That means rocky material with well-understood properties, not the soft and inconsistent material found at a seaside site. A quarter to 30% is, is what's called backfill material. So there's lots of material that we have to excavate at Sizewell, which isn't really suitable for use in a nuclear power station. And we call it unsuitable material. So that has to be taken away and disposed of and replaced by what we call suitable material. And that comes from various sources, Scotland, Norway, the Lake District, and parts of Leicestershire. And again, that's the same materials that would have been used at Hinkley. And the majority of that backfill material will actually come by sea to the temporary beach landing facility that we have uh, in the scheme now. Most of that concrete material stuff is mostly coming by rail. 
So these, but these are significant, significant trains. They're they're a locomotive and twenty wagons. So they're circa three hundred and fifty meters long, carrying about twelve hundred and fifty tons each time. With limited scope for trains to pass each other on the local East Suffolk Railway, which is a single track for many stretches, new rail infrastructure must be built. The UK is already building one major railway, HS2. While EDF considered some major changes to the existing line, they realised the UK rail agency, Network Rail, might struggle with another major project. So we're actually doing two things. One is in, in what's called the early years of the project, before the Sizewall Link Road and all the rest of the stuff is completed, we'll be taking two trains a day into some new sidings that we're going to create just to the east of Leyston. And whilst we're doing that, we'll also be building something called the Green Rail Route, which is a four and a half kilometre long private siding from the branch line right into the construction site to the concrete batching plant where the materials are needed. That's for two things. One, one to reduce the, the impact of HGVs on the road, because each train takes away 70 HGV movements a day. And secondly, to give EDF greater certainty about the deliveries of materials they're going to get each day. As well as these bulk materials, construction will require the movement of vast numbers of abnormal indivisible loads, or AILs. What we've done here, uh, well, there's two elements to the abnormal indivisible loads. Firstly, there's what are called the permanent AILs, which are the large components of the power station, which will come along right at the end or near the end of the construction period and, and will form you know, the, the, the components of the power station that will go in there. And they will come by sea. And we think there's about 400 of those permanent AILs, probably in the circa last four years of the construction period. The other one is, is what, what's called temporary. In effect, this is contractors' equipment, really, to build the power station. So this is things like water cabins uh, and modular buildings and cranes and dumpers and excavators and steel fabrications and bits of the tunnel boring machine and that sort of stuff. So all the stuff that you need to build the power station. It varies a little from year to year. Um, but typically, you'd get about 750 of these a year. It varies between about 500 and 1,000 a year at Hinkley over the period they've had so far. About half of them are what are called construction and use wide loads. So these are things which are more than 2.9 metres wide and therefore outside the normal regulations. So that's about half of them. So they're not particularly heavy, they're just wide. But there are some really substantial loads that will need to be moved. These are covered by the Department for Transport's Special Transport General Order, or STGO, regulations. These allow larger loads to be moved without every journey requiring specific permits. And then you get increasingly heavy things called STGO loads, up to 50 tonnes, then up to 80 tonnes, then up to 150 tonnes. And they make up pretty well all of the rest of the 50%. And then you get very, very few what are called special order or VR1 VR loads. And these are the exceptionally big things, which are more than six metres wide or more than 150 tonnes. And these are the ones where they'll, they'll try to 
do they'll try to transport them via the beach landing facility but on some occasion you might not be able to do that you have to do it by road so they're, they're very they're very rare there's probably a couple of those a year maybe Bringing all of these people and all of this material to site will require extensive use of road, rail and sea infrastructure. Richard Bull is the head of the DCO delivery for the project, leading from the client's side. He was involved in developing the transport proposals throughout the public consultation stages and describes the existing infrastructure around the site. Sizewell itself is a, is a challenging site. It's serviced in the main by the A12, uh, travelling from north to south or south to north. But the current main access route to the station is via the B1122, which was the main access road for the construction of Sizewell B. And there are communities along that route, uh, Theberton and Middleton Moor and Yoxford, that we have paid particular attention to in developing our proposals for the DCO. So the application for the development consent will include a number of transport schemes to reduce impacts on that B road specifically in the A12. Uh, uh, for example, bypassing certain local communities to reduce those transport impacts. If you look at the scale of the construction for Sizewell C, which is uh, essentially a replica of the Hinkley Point C construction. There is a significant volume of materials that need to be transported to the construction site and uh, a significant sized workforce required to deliver the construction process. And that requires appropriate infrastructure to ensure that happens and um, as part of our as part of our application we have proposed enhancements to that infrastructure along the uh, major route corridors for that for those materials to so the A12 and B1122 and also introducing the capability for importing materials by sea and also importing large pieces of equipment that are needed for the uh, construction itself uh, that are integral part of the, the station as well to be delivered on a beach landing facility. So we've been quite rightly put under a lot of uh, pressure through the consultation stage to minimise the number of HGVs on the road. So despite the fact that we're actually enhancing the road, we do understand that uh, road transport should be minimised and we should deliver a, a broad freight management strategy that, that, that provides a modal split across uh, more environmentally friendly means to get materials to site. One key way of doing this was to develop local rail infrastructure to handle as many freight moves as possible. But the existing infrastructure was not sufficient without specific upgrades. We focused on developing a capability to deliver materials by rail. And we worked very closely with network rails throughout that process to establish what's possible, noting the fact that the Suffolk line is constrained by a single line uh, north of 
Woodbridge and south of Saxmundham, so the capacity for moving materials by rail during the day whilst the passenger service is operating is, is minimal, but there is potential to move materials overnight, which is uh, where we have focused our attention. The East Suffolk Line is an operating railway. Um, for us to use it overnight, uh, it still will need some enhancements to some level crossings and signalling that we're working with, with Network Rail on. The major work that Sizewell C will be undertaking is to enhance the Sizewell branch line, which um, hasn't been used for the last uh, couple of years, but uh, has been used previously for taking materials in, in and out of Sizewell A so the nuclear flask uh, service. So that, that uh, track needs to be upgraded to, to accommodate heavier trains, longer trains, and a more regular service. So you know, we, we would aim to, to um, deliver up to five, uh, five trains in and out of the construction site at, at peak construction. And uh, obviously the, the infrastructure needs to be able to support that. So we'll be utilizing in the early stages of construction, an upgraded sizable branch line. So the track will be uplifted and relayed and we will create a new uh, early years railhead in Layston. And we will deliver up to two trains a day into that temporary railhead whilst we are constructing a major rail link from that branch line into the main construction site. Once that, once that new spur, that new temporary rail spur is, is uh, constructed, then we will be able to increase the number of rail services we run on a daily basis into the site. Alongside these improvements to road and rail infrastructure, two new facilities will be needed for marine transport. Adjacent to the construction site, uh, we'll have two facilities actually that we'll be constructing. There'll be uh, the MBIF, the Marine Bulk Import Facility, which will be specifically used to import uh, construction materials, aggregates to the site. Uh, and they will, be, they will be transported to the main point of use using a conveyor system. We're also, will be constructing a beach, a permanent beach landing facility which will be used for the uh, larger abnormal indivisible loads. The DCO process comes to a crunch at the examination stage. At this point, an appointed examination panel look at every aspect of the project over a six-month period. Their report is then passed to the Secretary of State who makes a final decision. Before the examination clock started ticking, EDF and WSP needed to make sure they had a robust model in place that allowed them to answer stakeholders' concerns and examiners' questions. This needed to address both transport of materials and AILs, and passenger transport. It's fair to say the project will have an impact on accommodation in the area. And one of the things that we did early on was we built what's called a gravity model, and that's looking at where people are likely to live who are working at the site and again splitting it into the home-based and non-home-based workers what we did there is we had some information from size will be from the 1980s 
and we tried to calibrate our model to reflect travel behavior at that time. And it was a little bit crude, but that's the way that we tried to determine where people are likely to live whilst working on the site, because obviously you need to know where the origin of journeys before you can model what the behavior is on the network and what the demands are on the network. This initial modeling and verification created a starting point for the planning process. The next step was to build a strategic model that could be used to see the impacts of Sizewell Sea construction worker and freight traffic around the region. We then built um, a strategic traffic model uh, in a piece of software called VISUM, V-I-S-U-M. Uh, and that extends from Lowestoft in the north to Ipswich in the south uh, and about 35 kilometres inland. And it doesn't model every road in the highway network, but it models all the important ones. And we use that to try and firstly replicate what we see on the ground now. So if, if a particular road is carrying 10,000 vehicles a day, our model has to show it carrying something like 10,000 vehicles a day, not 50,000 or, or, or 500. So we have to calibrate the model so that it reflects existing conditions. And only then we can use it to forecast what might happen in the future when we introduce all these new workers going to Sizewell. So we could gather lots and lots of data and synthesize that into a model to try and reflect what's observed on the ground. And once we've met certain criteria, which are checked by the county council, once we've satisfied them that the model's reflecting the conditions on the ground, we can then apply the additional workforce and additional freight movements from Sizewell on top. And that's how we assess where the impacts are. And that leads us to how do, where do we need to mitigate and how do we need to mitigate the impacts. The VISM model allowed for a robust, accurate model of impacts of each possible infrastructure plan. This was a direct response to what happened at Hinkley. And at Hinkley, they, they used what's called a spreadsheet model, a much more simple approach. Uh, and it got a fair bit of criticism by the examining authority at the time. And therefore, EDF's response was, we're not going to do that again at Sizewell. We're going to build a model, a bespoke model from scratch. And one of my colleagues, Sally Powell, had worked on that throughout the project for about the same length of me, 10 years, and had actually been away and had two children during the course of it and was still working on it when she came back the second time. So a huge undertaking, huge, but really important because it gives us the information to assess where the impacts are, not only from a sort of transport perspective, but also we use that information to assess changes in air quality, changes in the noise environment and that sort of stuff as well. So it informs a lot of the environmental assessment that we do as well. John had joined the project in the middle of his career. While he has taken on some smaller but still significant projects in his time, Sizewell has dominated his working life for more than a decade. As the examination stage of the process loomed, he handed over the reins to Nick Cotman. The Planning Act in 2008 brought in new procedures around large, major, nationally important infrastructure and created a new, a new consenting process called the Development Consent Order process that put strict timescales on uh, the overall uh, application process and the examination process to get to a decision. So certainly 
focuses uh, everyone's mind, all the, the, the applicant, the, the developer themselves, the stakeholders, the, the various authorities involved in the process to, to work towards reaching a, a, a decision uh, on, on the application itself. There was an enormous amount of consultation that was carried out in the in the eight years prior to the application actually being submitted, and there were four rounds of formal consultation uh, with stakeholders in the community around those proposals. And the scheme evolved and developed and responded to the feedback from through those consultation stages prior to prior to reaching the uh, application submission itself. And then, of course, the the process puts uh, interested parties, key stakeholders in the process front and center, really, and, and core to the examination process. So consultation process, although the timescales are, are tightly constrained, uh, is really all configured around uh, the stakeholders having an opportunity to uh, to influence the, the process and the, and the proposals and for them to be scrutinized in an appropriate way. The examining authority consists of five members from a variety of backgrounds. One of the examiners paid particularly close attention to the impact of the project on vehicle mileage. EDF had considered five potential routes to the new Sizewell link road that would bypass the B1122, reducing disruption to local communities. We determined that we needed to effectively bypass the B1122 to reduce the traffic volume on it. The further south one was the one that was dated back to the 1980s. And then we looked at a number of other routes and variations on routes further north, with the route that we eventually chose being the furthest north of all of them. We came up with various alternatives, looked at what the highway geometry standards required us to do, so did some initial planning, and then we did what's called a multi-criteria assessment of the five routes. And that looked at, for example, land take, the length of the scheme, the impact on drainage, um, the impact on the number of landowners affected, um, the need to cross rivers or the railway in this particular case, and a whole host of other stuff. We had five routes, and, and there were some of them that once we did the multi-criteria assessment really weren't going to be the winner. So once we narrowed it down a bit, we started to look at using the model to try and predict what the traffic effect of the route would be. And what we found is, fairly quickly, was that the, the northern route, which is the one that we eventually picked, was by far the most effective at reducing traffic on the B1122. But this route did not reduce vehicle mileage as much as some of the other routes, and so drew questions from the examiner. The model was able to help EDF show that it was still the best option. And that was fine, and that's, that's clearly a factor that you need to consider, but it's not the most important factor, because your objective is to reduce the impact on the B1122. And if you pick a scheme which minimises mileage, but actually doesn't really reduce traffic significantly on the B1122, why would you be doing that? So eventually we persuaded the examining authority that the route that we'd chosen was the right one. It didn't minimise mileage, but it was the most effective in reducing the impact on the B1122, which was the reason in the first place uh, 
that we wanted to produce a sizable link road. The DCO process is all about balancing different goals and metrics like this. Rather than the long drawn out planning process used on prior national scale projects, its tight timetable and comprehensive approach ensure stakeholders' concerns are addressed and project owners have a clear and final decision. Helping a client make sure they are ready for the examination stage takes some serious engineering firepower. All of this work was originally scheduled to come to a head as the first COVID lockdown came into effect. The examination stage was delayed, and when it did take place, restrictions were still in place. A feature of the DCO process, uh, and particularly on major, major projects of this scale, is the level of coordination required across various technical disciplines, environmental and engineering disciplines, as well as planning and legal disciplines. And of course, they require a lot of meetings. Uh, and what was a massive opportunity really through the through the lockdown period was that everyone became very adept at working online and working on uh, in, a, in a virtual way and in a hybrid way on Teams calls and uh, and virtual meetings. And we were able to assemble teams and have meaningful coordination meetings in a virtual way uh, at very short notice in a way that we that would have been impossible in working face to face and and all coming together in, in a single venue the first round of questions that came through from the examining authority numbered 2229 questions um, and that was that was a record at the time for any dco and substantially ahead of the the, the previous record for the number of uh, of uh, questions in the first round of the DCO. The scope of the documentation required was huge. But it was essential to ensure all stakeholders' concerns were heard and considered. This allowed the examining stage to be kept to a tight schedule. That was followed by two subsequent rounds of uh, examiners' questions through the, through the process. And so, I mean, that gives some scale of the number of questions that needed to be responded to uh, across the project team and of course as i said that happened there were three rounds of questions typically the, there was something like three or four weeks available to respond to those those question rounds the examiners were, were had, had a vast amount of experience and um, did an excellent job really of understanding where the most important areas of examination lay they were certainly very experienced in in the process in major infrastructure projects and they i felt knew the right questions to ask the examiners knew to ask the right questions but would edf and wsp be able to provide the right answers i've been very very close working very closely with suffolk and east suffolk national highways in particular but also uh, with many parish councils uh, in and around Suffolk um, and around some of the, the key pieces of infrastructure that support Sizewell Sea um, and around the, the, the main uh, development station itself and, and the key routes via which uh, Sizewell Sea traffic arrive to and depart uh, the station itself. So we've had monthly, monthly meetings with most of these groups, uh, most of these traffic and transport working groups um, over many years to to work to hear um, their concerns and to collaborate on uh, developing measures that that help to both both mitigate potential impacts but also to provide a 
uh, a legacy benefit and, and uh, an improvement in, in those uh, villages and towns. A key way of minimising impacts on the communities around Sizewell is through the adoption of a construction traffic management plan produced by WSP and a delivery management system developed by EDF. This will see HGVs, or heavy goods vehicles, corralled at a freight management facility close to the A12. They will then travel on a closely planned schedule so material arrives at site when needed without causing congestion or disruption on the B1122. It's complemented by two park and ride schemes which allow workers driving to the site from farther away to park at two locations north and south of the site and complete their journey by bus. The impact of these measures will be closely monitored as work progresses, allowing stakeholders and authorities to ensure the plan is being implemented properly. The construction traffic management plan, for example, one of the key features is it sets caps on the number of HGVs that can travel uh, to and from the site, and it, it, can, it defines the routes over which those vehicles can travel. And they'll, of course, be closely monitored using GPS and, a, and tracked uh, using GPS and, and scheduled using a delivery management system. So there are very tight and strict caps on that. And of course, there's penalties if those caps are exceeded. Meeting the requirements of the DCO process has taken years of work. But, Nick says, it's proven worthwhile and acts as a model for how projects of this scale are planned and approved around the world. With some adjustments, it could also be an efficient way to plan and approve smaller but still nationally significant projects. I think the DCO process has it certainly supports the timescales required to reach um, decision, decisions about nationally important infrastructure. And from that point of view, I think it, um, it would be seen as a success there and a, and a, and a, a process that, that supports those outcomes. There has been a lot of discussion uh, recently in the media and within government about the efficiency of the process and the timescales required uh, for various different projects. And of course, DCOs, although they're all nationally significant infrastructure, they all vary in size, but all are constrained to the same uh, strict timescale. So there is some, we're awaiting announcement from government around opportunities to streamline the process. So we may see some further changes coming to the DCO process in the near future. The other advantage of the DCO, which I think is a, is, um, you know, is a real strength, is that at the end of the process, the applicant has a um, an all-encompassing consent to move forward with the development that incorporates all of the land acquisition rights, all of the consenting rights, the planning consenting rights, various orders that are wrapped into the DCO process, so that it is a, uh, if you like, a, a sort of one-stop shop or an, an all-encompassing consent to move forward. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by me, Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, 
And our man with the all-encompassing plan is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP, and thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. 